wait, wait. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was going for. We're cutting chickens' heads off. Ooh. Happy November 1st. <laughs> we are recording live from the graveyard itself that is the earth because in truth the earth is just one big graveyard for all of us eventually and (laughs) and this podcast will help get you about 45 minutes closer to your death (laughs) so i hope you enjoy that hello Welcome here to our special Halloween episode of On the Island, a podcast mostly about Survivor, where we talk about Survivors and to Survivors and with Survivors and under Survivors. Just everything Survivor. So, we're back here for this very spooky episode to talk about week six of Survivor season 39, Island of the Idols. I am your host, Taylor Gaines, and with me... On the other end of the spooky rotary telephone. <laughs> He's going to kill me before I kill him. It's Tyler B. Commons. Nah, I'm just going to build you a separate part of the shelter. Because you snore at night. You get that? You know that one? Did you hear it? It was Rob. Uh, Rob. 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 Taking a shots. Classic zinger on Sandra. And he also got the title of the episode. Yeah, I enjoyed them pretending that they're actually living out there and showing them building some kind of shelter. <laughs> it was like, you know, we got a lot of time out here. No one's voting us off. So we're building a two-story cabode. I am interested to see. I, I have to assume they're going to be integrated into the game at some point, right? Like, at a certain point in the game, everyone will know that they're there. Otherwise, what are we doing? They have to, yeah, I mean, they have to at some point, I think. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, man. That was a yawn. That wasn't Something a... needs to scare Ty to wake <laughs> him up. Do we need to keep doing spooky noises? Um, I mean, at some point, they have to know. Like, we had to see Elaine and Elizabeth both be like, you know what I know? I know what you know. Ha! They're, they're here. So, they're... I, I don't think the secret can stay under wraps for too much longer. Yeah. I thought it was a pretty big clue that they were showing us people talking about it for once. That was a big thing. But a lot of things happened this week, Ty. We had an Island of the Idols visit. A live tribal, as they like to say. A big vote block. A chicken murdered. Some flipping. (laughs) Some potential rock drawing. And a very moving conversation about race in America. Yeah, we get the full spectrum of what makes Survivor great. This is basically Survivor at its best, I think, where... It shows us how much of a social experiment it is and how hard it is to just be a human trapped out there with fellow humans when you are living in whatever year it is. And also highlighting how complex the game is strategically and how exciting it can be from a gameplay perspective. Yeah, we got to have, um, you and I always call them human moments between Jack and Jamal. And then there was a good bit of strategy that we got to see play out and um there's definitely winners and losers and i feel like i'm trying not to spoil anything but i want to just dive in so i'll I'll let you lead the dive 
Well, let's dive in. I think we should start with the Jamal Jack conversation because I feel weird about shoving it into the back of the episode. So <laughs> let's get into that because they devoted a lot of time to it. It actually was interesting from a presentation standpoint because I felt like they weren't going to dive into it. There was a moment where Jack said something. We can get into all the details, but Jack said something. Jamal kind of responded, and then it seemed like the show was about to move on from it. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting that they called that out, but just kind of for leaving it there. But then they went really deep on it, Ty. Yeah, we. it started out with a good segment where um, Jamal is teaching Kelly some West African dance because, you know, he's a teacher and, and setting that up and then jack who is apparently really good friends with jamal they seem like they are tight-knit and i think this moment brought them even closer just kind of making a sideways comment um everybody gets a buff out there but for some reason jamal is leaning over a fire and cooking something and jack is like hey just just pick it up with your do-rag and jamal's like do-rag do-rag we all have buffs like what why do you call it why do you call it a do-rag for me you know and it it Mm -hmm. was the subtlety that came through in that the subtle sort of racism and saying things without thinking It, it was the best picture and maybe one of the best ways i've ever seen it seen it i've ever seen it addressed talking about things that are racist without even thinking about it. And I don't mean like outwardly racist, you know, like not big actions that you would call out, but just like the way people talk to each other, there's inherent um, bigotry or just there's a difference. I'm struggling to put proper words to it. The way I've thought about it, and this is from the perspective of someone who's white and grown up surrounded by a lot of white people I think a lot of white people misperceive the word racism to mean, well, not not necessarily misperceive, but they assume that all it means is, oh, you hate other races. If if someone says something you did is racist, then that means you are a hateful, bad person. And Mm -hmm. I think, obviously, that's a piece of racism at a lot of times, and especially throughout history, but like when we talk about racism in something like this and an incident like this, we're talking about something that has been so normalized and oversimplified that you kind of don't realize how hateful or demeaning something like that can be because of how it's been presented to you through pop culture or through the white people you grew up around or whatever. And you process it in a way that you're, you just don't think anything of it. Whereas, obviously, when Jack called Jamal's buff a do-rag, he got into defensive mode of like, hey, uh, do you know the connotation that that word carries and the implications it has for just how people will even look at me essentially. And I think he did a better job of explaining it than I will. And I think the survivor truly couldn't have asked for a better representative in this moment to convey all of this. Mm -hmm. But 
if they had put the video up on YouTube, I was actually surprised they had not given how important it felt. But as of now, I have not seen the video up on their YouTube page. I, I would insert the audio into this episode if they had, but it's a little too complicated to do it from the full episode. But essentially what he said was the image of a do-rag and like a wife-beater kind of shirt, which even that phrase in and of itself, I don't think he used that. I just thought of that. I think that phrase in and of itself is sort of a troubling phrase. Um, but that image is something that's associated with this stereotype of deadbeat black fathers who are like lazy and abandon their kids and, you know, all of those negative connotations. Mm -hmm. Jamal, Jamal actually said it gives the idea of a thug, a deadbeat father, or like a leech on social services. And I think that that covers a wide enough perspective. And the way he also handled it, I wrote down a lot of things that he said in that moment, but one of the things he said, you never understand how harmful little moments can add up to be. And I think that is one of the clearest statements because Jack, like, Jack and Jamal seem like they're friends and they like each other. I don't think Jack was trying to be racist and be like, hey, this is my black friend. I expect him to wear a do-rag and be that leech on society. But he, he wouldn't have said that to anyone else on the tribe, right? Like, Exactly. And it's, it's hard to even make an analogy for this because like you said, like those little moments affect people who are on the bottom in ways that you can't understand. And I think like I've tried to think of it because I like, I want to be empathetic, but like as a white guy, I will never like, I mean, you've heard, I'm sure you've heard bad Twitter arguments about this, but like someone can call me a cracker or whatever. And like, that doesn't mean anything to me. That's not insulting. Cause that's just like, like, what is that what does that actually how does that affect me where like there are a lot of things you could say such as do-rag and worse things that are like offensive because they're larded in so much history and like were used at times to create a certain image or to keep people down or you know obviously in the times of slavery a lot of words were used that people have carried on in ways that are unhealthy and like people try to disconnect history from a lot of these things and i imagine it's like a very loosely like like what i'm about to say is not anything like this but if someone who really knows you and cares about you knows that making a little comment about you know you not being funny is gonna like affect you more than anything else they could say because they know that you're self-conscious about that particular thing i think it's like a magnified more insulting version of that when you go after minorities and people in disadvantaged positions in the country that we've set up where like you're calling out this construct that power structures have created over the years that like mm -hmm. they can't do anything about and it just reminds them of their position basically where you're like oh remember how this is the image that we want of you and like this is where you belong in the totem pole and I, mm -hmm. I think it's hard for people to understand that that's what is processed in a situation like this. And I thought he explained it so well. And he, he even referenced that idea that like oftentimes they create these images that are comfortable for white America to digest. And 
then just kind of move on without thought of repercussions. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see what happens because it's sort of been ingrained in society of, I mean, we've talked about this because we talked about it with Julia Carter, we talked about it with Wendell, we talked about it with Davey, we talked about all these kind of different things um, of black representation on this show and sometimes it doesn't get the best look, but I think this was a very good representation, and I think Jamal handled it in the best way we've seen. Now, that doesn't mean there haven't been other positive conversations taking place out in the game of Survivor, but... Well, and obviously, Julia wrote last season about there being a conversation like this that wasn't shown. Mm-hmm. So there's and, some conversation around that. Yeah, and and it's really good that um, CBS decided to show it this season but Jamal was asking like very straightforward questions that I think a lot of people in your and my situation, straight white males are scared to be asked where he said like white straight men have a long way to go to realize their advantage. And I think that that is so true. Like I don't, I don't realize what people feel walking through a grocery store or walking down the street, you know, like I can't, I can't be in that mind space where somebody is instantly going to be recognized or thought of as, let's say, the thug, the deadbeat father, or the leech on social services. Like that's generally not the look. Yeah, like that try is to imagine with straight people, white guys. Yeah, like try to imagine people just thinking that of you without talking to you or knowing anything about you. Like they just see you, and they're like giving you like that vibe. And obviously, without devolving into a whole political conversation. You can see a number of police videos that there's like a similar kind of thing happening where a certain thing is assumed instantly and then things go poorly. And uh, and Mm. we've seen that time and time again. But like, I think in our position, we just have to try to like learn and like you said, recognize that privilege as hard as it is to like see it for what it is in our position, I guess, because it's so easy to feel like someone's attacking you when they're like, you don't realize how good you have it. And you're like, no, I've worked hard or whatever. And I don't, I've thought a lot over the years about how like everyone makes their own life really hard (laughs) because that's what we do. And everyone has a hard time and struggles and stuff. But there's just this outside thing that we don't like to talk about where there are essentially different steps on the ladder that you get to kind of start out at. And it's hard to address that in a way that you can remove all your pride from. And I think it's just a matter of working every day to try to do that through listening to different voices, reading history, (laughs) and trying to see how history affects where we are today. And just, like, honestly, not think of yourself as more deserving of things than other people. Because I feel like that's usually the number one reason that things go wrong in most situations. Like, even just in interpersonal relationships or, like, friend groups, things usually devolve because certain people think that they deserve something that they're not getting. And that's when you run into a lot of issues. Yeah, it becomes tough when my ego and my view of myself becomes so inflated that I'm not willing to listen to somebody that's like, 
hey, you literally don't know what it's like to walk into a grocery store or convenience store and have people stare at you for no reason. You don't, and, and I think that's the best part of this. And I think that's probably what my biggest takeaway from this is Jamal was like, can you even think of a situation where you are on the bottom? And Jack was like, I, I really can't think of any situation. And I, I think that is one of the most eye-opening things he said, because where do I see myself at a disadvantage? I can say there's some times where I don't see myself at the top, but I definitely never see myself at the bottom. And that's interesting to know that there is an entire segment of our population that goes into situations. I mean, you can expand this beyond just white-black relationships. You think about Karishma, like some of her struggles probably stem from this. She's like, you don't see a 36-year-old Indian woman on TV trying athletic things, leaving her family back home. And, and, And that's... It's a little different, but it's also she's playing into she needs to fit into this box, or at least she feels like the, she does. And I think Jamal's saying, we don't have to fit into that box. There's a box right, that's like, been created. Let's tear it down. We shouldn't even have to fully credit Survivor for handling this well at this one time because one of the examples... <laughs> that I thought of as you were talking about it was imagine coming on to survivor and realizing you're the only black guy there. And then you're like, Oh, I'm here to be this image and that's it. Like I'm not here to be myself. And then all of a sudden you have this thing of like, I have to live up to this and also try to be true to myself. And like, there's just this, I assume dual identity. You have to try to live at all times where you're like trying to balance your personality with what, the personality like white America expects you to be or something. And like, you're always playing within the bounds of that box, like you said. And I just uh, applaud the openness and vulnerability of this conversation and the ability to show it on TV in the way that they did. I thought it was a really good, important thing. And I, I thought honestly, they, like I said this already sort of, but they couldn't have had two better people to be in this situation because uh, on his side, Jack was very apologetic and willing to learn. He, I even made a note of the fact that when he apologized, he said, thank you for allowing me to apologize. Like mm-hmm. even recognizing that it wasn't like his right to have Jamal forgive him, like, <laughs> and that he needed to give Jamal whatever space he wanted to decide if he could move on from it or whatever. And like, I thought that was a vulnerable, admirable way to go about it. But even more so Jamal was just so graceful and kind and patient through the whole thing that like, it was just a, uh, inspiring thing to watch in a time where it feels like people aren't willing to listen to things like that because they just, want what they want things to, to to be clean they they want to be able to say oh i don't see color or whatever you know mm-hmm. i i think i think that we are at a time where we need to sit with discomfort and i think that is one thing you got to see jack do literally they were sitting on that 
piece of driftwood or whatever down by the beach and having this conversation late at night. And you could tell he was at a loss for words, but he still felt like he had to talk. But Jamal was willing to speak open and honestly, and Jack was willing to speak open and honestly. And I I think that's really all we can ask for. I, I think CBS, I think Survivor showed really well the role reversal because I think a lot of times people think of teachers and leaders and that's why I talked about Jamal teaching the West African dance to Kelly it set him up in a way you don't see black men portrayed often enough as the responsible one the one taking the lead the one leading the charge on that conversation and even that I think was done well and I think that the way that that whole segment kind of evolved from here's Jamal being a fantastic leader to here's Jamal still being a fantastic leader. We need to learn to listen. And Jack, like you said, saying, I'd like to apologize. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to, it it just happened. And I, I think seeing the way they both handled it, um, is very positive, especially. Um, I think I might be more sensitive to it because I'm, I'm currently living in a city that is still not desegregated to national standards, and they still bus people into schools. Um, so wow. it's really, yeah, like you think it doesn't exist, and it's just really interesting living in a place. I, I went to a team meal at a local high school and all the white kids sat on one row of tables and all the black kids sat on another row of tables and it's like one high school football team and I was sitting here and I was watching and I was like that is so messed up that's still so for people that live on you know we always talk about east coast west coast those are the two most progressive places that don't think it still exists it still exists. It's still out there. And I think CBS did a wonderful job of showing an example of conversations and things that still need to be taking place. Yeah. And I think the thing you said about sitting in discomfort is really important because on one hand, this is a tired sob, but they were out there without phones or internet. They just had to like face this thing that happened Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, Jamal logging on and being like, this racist thing happened to me and getting 15,000 likes and Jack tweeting something angrily or whatever would happen in the Twitter world. Like they had to sit there and confront this thing because they live with each other. And like, I think that's what people lose sight of with the internet is like, they act like they're not living with each other. Like you pointed out the coasts or whatever, like people think they live in these different worlds where they don't ever have to see this invisible lib villain or whatever and like in reality we are all living in the same world and we're making it more and more toxic because we think that we're not in the same world and like in a heightened situation like this they're forced to recognize hey we have to wake up next to each other in the morning and keep going and keep working together to build this dumb thing we have which is a tribe on a tv show so like let's talk about this and for us as podcast hosts or whatever, 
I think we are sitting in discomfort in the sense that like we have been a podcast run by two straight white dudes for a long time <laughs> and like are still that. So like, I don't even know how much we can really add to this conversation other than to s- try to say what we're saying. And I'm sure we've screwed up uh, 17 times in the last 20 minutes or whatever, but like, <laughs> We just, I, I want to be willing to listen and, and talk through whatever we need to talk through, you know? Yeah, I echo that. I think, I think there's a lot of things that I still do and say incorrectly. And I'm proud that CBS got to show a moment where things were said correctly. Yeah, so hats off to pretty much everyone involved posts the incident actually happening and hopefully we can see more productive stuff like this in the future i thought andy dennert in his column i I thought he made a, a a good note about like this scene and this conversation was not a tangent or extraneous to survivor it's the backbone that survivor and cbs haven't had for years which is the thing we talk about all the time like a social game like showing us what a social game in america looks like in 2019 and i appreciated that aspect of it a lot so as we dive back into talking about the actual gameplay itself (laughs) i would just leave it at that for now and and leave the door open for this conversation because it's certainly not the end of it yeah someone someone tweet at us how many mistakes we just made in the last 15 minutes we can take it Okay, so Ty, I think throughout this episode, there was really only one other thing that happened in a very complex way, which was Elaine going to Island of the Idols, finding and earning a vote block advantage during the immunity challenge, and going to tribal with a 4-4 split that threatened to go to rocks at times and wound up just being very exciting. (laughs) yeah it was it was good to see her show up honestly i don't even know if she knows who sandra is but she shows up and she sees rob and she's like look at the hat look at the hat boston that's us and um i thought that was really interesting when she was faced with that task this could have just been tv editing it definitely looked like rob wasn't gonna finish his explanation in time for the sand to run out yeah, I don't blame her for jumping on it. I've, I know they they like to just blame every contestant who goes there for acting too quickly. But like, you know, you're with like two people who you think are sort of producers on the show. Like, you kind of just got to roll with it. Yeah. Uh, and she was great throughout that whole sequence. I think what did she refer to herself as? Like a a can of corn or something. <laughs> I yeah, I don't remember exactly. And. Got the chance to go find the advantage during the challenge. I will say, like, we've seen this several times now, this idea of, like, finding something during a challenge and not letting anyone else notice. And I feel like it's almost never been a challenge. Everyone (laughs) seems to do it so easily. Well, everybody's just so into it. There's so many different factors of, like, they're exhausted and they're not eating as much as normal and... Like and like, why doesn't Jeff keep commentating like he always does? 
He's like, oh, and Elaine reaches under and grabs something. <laughs> yeah, Elaine dropping her secret advantage. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was interesting and it was exciting. Um, we've seen them do this for years now, putting advantages in challenges. I like it. I think that um, raises the excitement and the intensity of a moment. Um, now, whether that's artificial or real can be debated but i think that it's it's really awesome when you are forced to sort of be sneaky and hide what you're doing and it was an interesting twist that she had to announce what she was doing with it essentially before the vote happened because mm-hmm. it was unclear to me from the episode that she was going to have to do that and it really added like an atomic bomb type element to the tribal council itself that was pretty cool yeah, I I don't remember. I guess we've, I mean, we've seen idle nullifiers. We've seen things like that, but I don't know that we've ever had a vote block be announced before discussion even ended. I thought that that was an interesting choice um, for her to bring it out in what felt like the middle, or at least was edited to be the middle. We know tribal councils go for two, three hours sometimes. And then you get the whispering and you get people jumping up and you get everyone wondering, is Aaron still going to vote with us? What's going to happen? And it, it made for a lot of drama and it made for a lot of excitement. But yeah, it was really interesting to to see the advantage played early versus right before the voting. Yeah, so Vokai broke down with Elaine, Elizabeth, Missy, and Aaron from the original Lyro tribe and Jason, Dan, Lauren, and Tommy from the original Vokai tribe. The Jason, Dan, Lauren, Tommy group seemed determined to go to rocks if necessary, whereas the Lyro group did not so much feel that way. Aaron and Missy were very ready to flip, but Missy bought back in as soon as she heard about the advantage. Aaron pretended to, and I guess ultimately did, but they were a little more loose because overall, even at this point, it is still eight to six original Vokai, so... The Lyros were in a bit more of a tenuous position. That being said, I think this move, and I, you could debate <laughs> like how fair it was at all, because the way they decided Elaine was the one to go to Island of the Idols was because she was the one who sat out the reward challenge, mm-hmm. which was kind of random because that has nothing to do with the original tribes. It's these new tribes that they're on, and the one that won last week, and then she's getting chosen, it's kind of a random choice, even from the original group. And the fact that it happened on this group that was 4-4 obviously gives them a huge advantage. And then she's given an advantage that inherently is like massive, that you can just swing in a vote entirely as long as your group sticks together. So without getting into the debate of the importance of the survivor gods or whatever, <laughs> I think this new-ish element of getting a vote block is very interesting. And I thought it was just, like, thrilling to watch them use it on someone and watch everyone panic. Yeah, I thought it was um, super interesting to touch on the point of your saying whether it's valid or legit. I can't remember the exact term that you used. I think at this point, you just have to accept the game for being the game. Was this an example of idle apocalypse or advantage apocalypse or something? Yes, but 
we're never going to go back to season one where there's no idols and you have your alliance and you vote people out and then someone flips. Like, that's not the game that we get to watch anymore. And I, I think ultimately I'm not bothered by that as much this season as I have been in the past. You know, we had the infamous nobody was voted out because there's so many advantages and, and they had to walk out of tribal with no votes being cast and it basically it's not that situation so i don't feel robbed or cheated i don't feel like everyone has an idol and as we've seen so far this season even if you have an idol you can go home with it in your pocket twice that's <laughs> happened now so it's it's not this advantage didn't bug me well and very much it also didn't really come down to the advantage this whole tribal came down to what Aaron decided to do mm-hmm. because if he had flipped, they could have blocked the vote and it still would have been four to three, mm-hmm. but he decided not to. I think in the moment I was wondering what good reason there would be for him to flip. I'm curious to hear your thought on this, but like if he had flipped, sure, he would be with the majority, but he would certainly be on the bottom of what is a huge majority at that point. And I just didn't see the benefit in it for him. And now he's brought it closer where it's eight, six original Vokai and they can kind of work their way back into the game and give himself even more options of where to go. So I I thought he made the right choice, but I saw some debate about it. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately he did make the right choice in not flipping because at one point he had an interview where he was like, well, I'm thinking about my game, and I'm not thinking about tonight. I'm thinking about three votes from now, four votes from now. And I'm like, three votes from now, you're going to be merged, and you're going to be the, on the bottom of this tribe. So you might outlive everyone in your minority tribe, but that doesn't really set you up. And like you're saying, it's 8-6 now. If that team loses again next week, then it could be you know 7-6, and then it could be 6-6 when we go into the merge. So I... Ultimately, I think this is the right call, not only for Aaron, but for that tribe, for that alliance, for Missy. Um, I don't think getting rid of Elaine would have really helped anything. I actually think it's even more so the right move for both of them because of their perception. And you've Mm -hmm. seen this time and time again from people who have been voted out so far, including Jason today in his interviews, saying that, Aaron and Missy were both playing very strategically and playing very hard. And the fact that that was the perception from everyone means to me like, hey, throw everyone off your scent and make yourself a little safer by making a basic loyal move so that people aren't just like, oh, this person's crazy and going to flip and do whatever they want, whatever's best for them. Like, Show some loyalty so that you can throw a question mark into the minds of other people. And I like it in that way, too, for the long term. Yeah, it it just is so much... I, I don't know another way to say it, but it removed a lot of moments for people to doubt Aaron. I think flipping, you know, they tried saying, well, he's with us, he's tight, he's in. But I don't ultimately think because once those four get back with the other four on the other tribe like or the other five then where is he it it doesn't matter are they gonna then try to use him to mount another 
thing. We had the the analogy of um, pilots and passengers last season, and I think if Aaron would have flipped, he would have been a passenger for the rest of this season. And I think he left room for himself to still remain a pilot. <laughs> By the way, it's also definitely worth pointing out that Jason mentioned in his interviews today that the plan was actually to vote Aaron out by the original Vokai group, and that was not shown to us, which I can complain about, but won't because this was a good episode. I think they originally planned to put four of the Vokai votes on Aaron, hoping that Aaron or Missy would flip, and then they could send Aaron home easily. But once the block happened, they all changed to Elaine to try to get Aaron to go with them because that was their only play at that point. So it just kind of tells you how many different things are always happening at once. And that, you know, Aaron was willing to go be with these people who weren't even ready to have him with them for one vote. <laughs> yeah, ultimately they, they wanted to get rid of him. So I, I thought that was really interesting. Like you said, I'm sad we didn't get to see it, but I think there's too much more important stuff that had to be seen this episode i mean we already talked about jamal and jack i liked hearing when elaine went to island of the idols and she talked about losing her mom a few months ago and she's like a million bucks that's nice but i'm really here for the experience and we you know sometimes that bugs me and that's like oh i'm just here to play the game and blah 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 if i don't win that's okay that does bug me but for elaine it it seems so um pure and so genuine yeah that it it doesn't bother me the way that she was saying that yeah she's just as cool i just like let's have her on the podcast i think too that this episode revealed a power structure for us and like our power rankings for example that is not what i was expecting so I'm, i'm interested how where we'll settle on that in the end here but before we dive into all that we should mention some of the fun things jason pointed out on his way out the door because he talked about his early mistakes in the game being on a tribe with nora i'll run through a couple of these things before we get to the power rankings (laughs) so when he got there he felt and was even called this apparently that he was being perceived as a stephen fishback type which just makes me think of bojack horseman have you watched bojack horseman they do this whole bit where whenever they have like a fake morning show or something, it'll show the hosts of the fake morning show and it'll, instead of a name, it'll just say a Ryan Seacrest type. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, they thought of him as a Stephen Fishback type. And he said when he got there, he intended to lie about being a lawyer, but told such a bad lie Apparently he said, I'm a, a, a licensing manager for a manufacturing company, which was an attempt to lie about what he did by using his wife's occupation, but was immediately called on it. And he said it didn't go over well at all. So that when he's disappeared for 10 minutes in that first episode, people already didn't trust him and just assumed that he was sketchy. So, uh, in his telling, it took him about 10 or 15 seconds for everyone on the tribe to think he's a liar and a terrible teammate. So, tough start and good recovery, honestly. He played pretty well from that point forward and unfortunately just got, you know, just got got by an unfortunate series of events. It's not the first time this season that we've talked about someone getting voted out almost at no fault of their own. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, funny aside note, his wife is a licensing manager for a manufacturing company. The manufacturer's umbrellas. I, that's mm. just... Sometimes I'm shocked by jobs that exist. That's all I have to say. Like that one, it, it has mean, to exist, but I never would ever think in my life about licensing manufacturer for umbrellas. I guess I get confused by things that I can't imagine people buying all the time. Like mm-hmm. when everyone has an umbrella, who's buying umbrellas? You know? <laughs> It's like, who are these people buying pillows? Like, I have a pillow. I don't need to go buy another pillow. Like, are people just stocking up on pillows? Are there people who buy, like, a new pillow every week? Who is keeping umbrella and pillow businesses in business? (laughs) This is my question. (laughs) I mean, you're supposed to get a new pillow, like, what, every two years or something like that? Oh, I don't know. I've had mine for, like, like six or seven yeah, I, I mean, I say that, but I bought my first new pillow this year. How is it? Like, my freshman year of college. How is it? It's uh, it's great. It's a little fluffy you, still. I'm waiting for it recommend... to, like, compact and compress. <laughs> do you recommend buying a <laughs> new pillow? I do. You should buy a new one. It'll mm. change your life. Well, there you have it. The other thing that Jason pointed out was, you know, the highlight of the season comedically, which was Nora... <laughs> coming back from Island of the Idols and trying to convince everyone that she had to be the caller for that reward immunity challenge a couple weeks ago. And he said in his telling, her execution was 20 times worse than even what you saw on television, which is wild because (laughs) it was so bad that I can't imagine it being worse. And to hear it described that way is just remarkable. He says, uh, before we even get to her story with how she has to be a certain position, she actually came back with a fake idol as well. As you saw, Dan likes to snoop through people's things. Tough episode for Dan, by the way. I hate that, by the way. He, he looks. He looked bad. Anyways. <laughs> he found a fake idol that Nora came back from Island of the Idols with. This was a legitimate fake idol that she made there, and we have no idea, no reason why. And then on top of all this, she admitted it was fake then tried to convince us about the color thing sitting there we're saying what are you talking about and her saying well the actual challenge is this and then we're like yeah there's no way somebody's going to be sent home because she does this and because she wants whatever advantage she's going to get from this and jason says specifically him and jamal were very against her being the caller outwardly right away and then he kind of walks through the amazing moment where they decided as a tribe to not not only let (laughs) not let her do it but to not let her be in the challenge at all because they felt she might sabotage it and you can go back and watch that over and over again from a couple weeks ago just remarkable amazing stuff certainly one of the most entertaining moments of the season so ty let's get into our power rankings because the tribe with nora on it now which is lyro which only has Two original Lyro in Karishma and Dean, and then five original Vokais in Nora, Jamal, Jack, Janet, and Kelly. One immunity this week did not get a lot of action. I'm interested to see if you land any of them in your power rankings. I think it is worth mentioning that they spoiled this last week, and 
essentially showed that Vokai was going to be the tribe going to tribal council and then it happened. So thanks for that. But where do you land, Ty? How do you want to go about our power rankings here? Let's do three to one. I'm going to start off my number three spot, Aaron. I think Aaron was in this swing vote position, which is a, a good place to be. And like we said, I think he ultimately made the right call in not flip-flopping. And I hope that that plays out in the future, that sticking with his original tribal lines will mean more down the road. And I think, I don't know if that's what he was thinking when he was sitting there in tribal, but I hope that's what he was thinking. And for that reason, he got my number three. I will say before I mention my number three that this is the first week I don't have Tommy in my top three, I think. Maybe not the first, but it's probably the first time you won't hear him mentioned in this section, perhaps, because tough app and had a moment where he was just staring at Aaron like such a disappointed teacher. And it was funny to see someone who's been built up constantly throughout this season have a really bad moment where thought something was going to happen and it did not so who do you have at number three my number three this is a little tricky because usually our power rankings are like who's in the best position in the game who made the best moves this week but i felt like what happened with jamal and jack was so important that i it merited some mention especially given the fact that on that lyro tribe i have no real sense of who's in control other than the fact that it's not dean and karishma (laughs) so I decided from that tribe I was going to put Jamal in at number three for this week because he had that great human moment, as you like to say, and is in a great position over there. So good week for him. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting because I always feel like this top three should have people that didn't go to tribal, but we saw so little of that other tribe this it's week. It's so hard, yeah. I don't have anybody from that tribe in my top three. So with that spoiler underway, number two for me was Elizabeth. And I think Mm. Elizabeth and Elaine sort of being able to orchestrate once Elaine came back with the advantage. um, Is that a spoiler? I may buy into um, what Lauren is saying about Elaine not really understanding strategy too well but elizabeth was kind of like hey this has to happen but i'm gonna let you do it because you have the advantage it was it was a good look and i think that she ultimately played well and i think she has caught on to the way this game is played from being somebody that was a recruit i think she's now in this game and understanding and seeing the way things work she's very good at teeing other people up too and never really getting the target on herself I think there was even a point in this episode where she said, oh, well, you tell them about mm-hmm. the thing. I don't want to be the one who does it. And she seems like she's very good at like putting that responsibility onto other people, but always keeping herself in a pretty strong position. It's a and true American I, hero right there in an Olympian. <laughs> I don't think she was ever really targeted either in this episode. So good episode for her, definitely. I have Aaron at number two for a lot of the same reasons you talked about, like, there was a moment right before the vote where I was just overwhelmed by how much power he had in that moment. And I was just like, he gets, he, Aaron fully gets to decide what happens next. And that's like a really, really powerful spot to be in. And I think he made the right move ultimately, which helps keep him in my top three for sure. And he's shown a lot of 
intelligence and thoughtfulness and bold strategy. So we'll see what happens with him. I think he still might be a little too aggressive, but good week, and I'll put him at two. Number one for me, and I I don't think it's through any action of her own, but I'm, I have Elaine at number one this week because she got the vote block and she played it and things went well for her. And honestly, this could potentially swing the entire shape of the rest of the season to see if that 8-6 becomes 7-6 and then 6-6. And I don't know that she knows exactly that. We can't be far from the merge either. Right. Um, I don't know that she knows that she made that big of a power move, but for that reason, she's my number one this week. Are you saying you're with Lauren, where Lauren said, I don't think Elaine is smart enough to have an idol? I'm leaning that way. I'm really buying into what CBS shows us lately. (laughs) I have Elaine number one, too. I think she showed a lot of strength in how she handled the Island of the Idols thing and played the advantage very well in the moment in Tribal. Got everyone panicked. What she wanted to happen happened. I think she has the Christian Hubicki danger of like people liking her too much. So I don't know how long she'll be able to last without really shaking things up a lot more. I think Sandra made a comment at some point about like her willingness to just act can really help her, but she needs to kind of embrace it more strategically. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens with her, but obviously a great week and my number one. Number one in our hearts, number one in the vote. She did well this week. Yeah, so there you have it, I guess. Another episode in the books. Rob and Sandra almost gave away the fact that they were there by laughing during Tribal Council, <laughs> which is enjoyable. That would have been a really fun way to spoil everything if someone was like, oh my gosh, who just laughed? What was that? <laughs> what if they just like fell out of their thing? Ooh, hey there. <laughs> like that cartoon scene where they fall through the door and it's like just a pile of bodies. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They're all listening from inside the closet, like stacked on top of each other. (laughs) Oh my god. I can't wait to see how they eventually find out that they're there. I think we probably only have, this was week six, so I'm guessing we probably only have one to two more weeks before the merge. Oh my gosh. It just dawned on me. They're building a huge shelter because that's where they're going to go once the tribes merge. Oh... Wow, this is why you have to listen to the end of the podcast. This is where the good stuff happens. Yeah, I think you're might, probably right. That might be you're, true. It might be totally false. I don't know. <laughs> I like that theory, though, because it's like, this is what they're going to do is just be there for the rest of the game. <laughs> like, they're not going to vote, but they're going to just be there for some reason. And people are going to talk to them and they're going to screw things up and it's going to be thrilling. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. Can't wait. <laughs> All right, so... I hope you enjoyed your Halloween candy and your Halloween podcast. It's been another episode, ironically named Suck It Up Buttercup by CBS. So maybe we should call it Suck It Up Peanut Buttercup. Let's do it. Reese's Pieces. (laughs) No, Reese's Pieces. Pieces. Reese's Pieces. (laughs) It's so hard to say it the right way. Oh, my God. Well, Ty's selling the Kool-Aid. You better not drink it. Thanks for coming. 
thanks for hanging out. It's fun. I hope you enjoyed your Halloween, I will say, bottom three favorite holidays. Oh, do you want to rank the holidays? Uh, Quick, number one, Thanksgiving. Number two, (laughs) Easter. Number three, probably Christmas. Hmm. I love the food I, holidays. <laughs> yeah, I'm, the food holidays is all that matters to me at this point. So Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, that's all you need. That's it. Fourth of July. You get some good food on Fourth of July. Oh, you're right. I might drop out Christmas. No, I can't drop out Christmas. <laughs> you work for a church. You can't drop out Christmas. Or Easter. Dang it. <laughs> Thanks all for right, listening. Well, that's that's next all week, the knowledge you're getting from me. We'll have all of our holidays ranked for you. But for now... This has been On the Island, week number six. Go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And until next time, have a beautiful week. I'm Taylor Gaines. Goodbye. Bye. good at making these things up as well. <laughs> that is uh, again. Hello. What if I just literally started right away? Would that blow your mind? Um the concept wouldn't, but you doing that would. <laughs> okay, it's 10:03 here on the East Coast. Testing. Testing. It looks good. Okay.